In this episode of Flying Smarter, I start by covering what airport slots are and how they can affect your flight. Then, I chat with Dave Grossman, who joins me to share his wealth of knowledge on points and miles. Welcome to episode 27 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. I'm really excited about this episode as well as the next one because they feature my chat with Dave Grossman from the Travel and Points and Miles website, Miles Talk. As you'll see, Dave is very knowledgeable and very passionate about the world of points and miles, and he had so much to share that I split it into two episodes. As usual though, I'll start off the episode with the questions and fun fact bits before getting into today's main segment with Dave. Let's get started. What is an airport slot? You may have been sitting at the gate on a delayed flight before, only to have your pilot announce further bad news. Your flight is further delayed because it has missed its takeoff slot. What does this mean? Well, the International Air Transport Association, or IATA, is a global industry association for the airline industry. It categorizes airports based on how close they are to capacity. The busiest airports that are closest to being at capacity with the most congestion are designated as Level 3 airports or Coordinated airports. Level 3 airports are considered coordinated because there is a high demand for the limited airport infrastructure like runways and gates. Level 3 airports therefore use a system of slots. Slots are essentially permission to use the airport at a given time. They generally come in pairs, one for landing and one for taking off, and include the departure and arrival slots themselves as well as permission to use airport facilities during the associated time. An airport's categorization can change between seasons and there are around 175 level 3 airports in the northern hemisphere's winter and around 200 level 3 airports in the northern hemisphere's summer. Slots can be administered by the airport itself or by a government authority. Coordinating slots is complicated business. You can imagine how many airlines want to fly to airports like New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport or London Heathrow Airport, and these airports simply don't have enough capacity to let everyone land and take off whenever they want. Deciding how to allocate slots is complex, and there are actually different views on how to allocate them most efficiently. Each year, IATA holds two slot conferences, during which airlines and airports from around the world attend and discuss slot allocation for the upcoming travel seasons. Slots are also sometimes leased or bought and sold between airlines, sometimes at exorbitant costs, with London Heathrow having particularly expensive slot transactions. For example, in 2020, Air New Zealand sold a slot pair for an 11am arrival and a 3pm departure for approximately 27 million US dollars. In 2016, Oman Air purchased a slot pair at Heathrow for a whopping 75 million dollars from Air France KLM, setting a world record. So if you're on a flight that has missed its departure slot, it probably means that you're at a pretty busy airport that's quite congested. Of course, there is some flexibility built in the schedule to allow for delayed flights like yours, but it may mean that you'll have to wait for a bit for there to be space to fit your delayed flight into the operation. Did you know that you can have a quote-unquote flight 
that is actually operated by a bus or a train? When booking an itinerary with certain airlines, it is possible to have part or all of your journey operated by a bus or a train. You'll be able to see this when booking in the spot where the aircraft type is normally listed. For example, Air France and KLM have long offered a bus service between Montreal and Ottawa in Canada for passengers flying to or from Montreal. Travelers can book a journey from Amsterdam to Ottawa, for example, with a connection in Montreal on KLM, but the Montreal to Ottawa portion is actually a bus service even though it has a KLM flight number. Taiwanese carrier China Airlines has a co-chair agreement with German rail operator Deutsche Bahn that allows certain trains to carry a China Airlines flight number, giving passengers the option of purchasing an itinerary from Taipei to Cologne in Germany for example. Passengers would fly from Taipei to Frankfurt and then take a train to Cologne, all on one itinerary. In the summer of 2022, American Airlines also started having buses operate a small amount of regional routes from Philadelphia International Airport, presumably due to a shortage of regional airline pilots. If you're flying with American from Chicago to Atlantic City for example, you'll likely be flying to Philadelphia and then connecting onto a bus to Atlantic City. Your bus would carry an American Airlines flight number and would leave from inside the secure part of the terminal so that you can connect as if you were getting on another plane. Dave Grossman has collected millions of frequent flyer miles and hotel points since 2003. He's the founder of Miles Talk, a website with the latest on how to best earn and spend credit card rewards, frequent flyer miles, and hotel points. As part of Miles Talk, he has also created a resource called Your Best Credit Cards, which is designed to give consumers a data-driven answer to the question of which credit card is best for them. He has run seminars at South by Southwest and the New York Times Travel Show and has been quoted in countless publications. He is also the author of the book Miles Talk, Live Your Wildest Travel Dreams Using Miles and Points. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk today about points and miles, of course, but specifically about having an optimized strategy. What does that mean to build a points and miles strategy? It's a great, great first question. Um, the the thing that most people don't do is think about a strategy and that gets them into trouble later. Um, and there's really two main things that we talk about when someone's really just starting out, if you're really, really new. Um, the first thing is actually having a strategy. That's actually a strategy to have a strategy uh, because what will happen a lot of times, uh, we also have a, a Milestone Facebook group. Um, so as of right now, it's about 18,000 members. And a lot of times someone will enter the group and say, you know, I've just gotten these five cards and what should I do now? And then the first thing is like, okay, you just randomly got five cards that are not any strategy at all. And you've also just locked yourself out of chase because of the 524 rule, right? So you wanna have, uh, you wanna build a card strategy that's, that's foundational, that helps you learn. So th this is assuming you're a, com a complete newbie, right? Um, you want to create a strategy and then the, the the second thing is that once you've created the earning strategy the earning strategy generally is two parts it's one is getting you used to how miles and points work um and and the best way to earn them and the best ways to redeem them and then once you've sort of got your foundational cards 
then we work on specific strategies. So I want to go to Europe next summer. I want to fly in business class. Um, you know, what are the ways that I can make that happen? There's two of us. We want to go both ways. Um, so thinking about what credit card bonuses can get you there and then using the points. Um, so then the last thing that I like to touch on when I'm talking about a strategy is that, that a huge mistake some people make is building a bank of miles and points for their retirement. And it's really important to know that miles and points work the opposite of money in a bank. They don't earn interest. They don't gain value. In fact, they rapidly lose value. Um, the programs devalue themselves constantly. Um, and it's a lot to keep up with in terms of how quickly they can devalue themselves. So you want to be able to develop the strategy and be able to act on that within a, a fairly short period, one to two years. Um, even then, the game might change in the middle. Uh, just as an example, with Delta Sky Miles, it's not that long ago that you could fly to Europe for 50,000 miles, and it was a fixed award. And now Delta doesn't have any award charts. And for the most part, you see awards um, to Europe starting over 300,000 miles each way, which is insane. And um, so if, you, if you're someone that was just only thinking about earning miles and you saved them for 20 years, you might discover that you could have taken 40 trips in the meantime, and instead now you have enough points for one. So earn and burn. <laughs> So you mentioned there that it's important to set goals. When it comes to goal setting, especially with lots of airlines that don't have rewards charts anymore, yeah. what do you suggest when it comes to finding out what you need or even defining what your goal is? Right. So, so the key now is flexibility. Um, so when someone is first starting out, I like to suggest a card like the Chase Sapphire Preferred, uh, which will come with a pretty good bonus, and they can learn how to use a program. Right. So it's like if they just got a Freedom Unlimited or a Freedom Flex card, those points aren't transferable unless you already have um, or also get a Sapphire Preferred or Reserve. So if you start out with the Preferred, it's got a low $95 annual fee. You can learn how to transfer points to different airlines and to Hyatt, which is a fabulous redemption, um, and sort of get your head around it. Then you can start learning sort of the ins and outs of the different airline partners. And then over time, if you get into it, you don't have to get into it as much as me, but if you get quite into it, um, you start learning that you want to have all of the major bank cards. Um, so in the US right now, we're talking about American Express membership rewards, Chase Ultimate rewards, City Thank You points, Capital One Miles, which are actually points, um, and a, a pretty recent upstart called Built Rewards. Um, it's a credit card that earns points when you pay your rent. Um, and they have great transfer partners also. So you want to focus on those rather than any airline. Um, you don't want to just, for instance, get a bank of United miles. Because then you might find that there's a really great redemption on Air France. And you can't do anything with it because you only have United miles. So all of the transferable points cards wind up giving you access to all of the different alliances. For example... If you wanted to book um, a short flight on American Airlines, which is not a Chase transfer partner, you might be able to transfer those points to British Airways, who's a One World Alliance partner, and book the flight on American Airlines. Um, so the flexibility is really the key. If somebody comes to me with a, a large bank of, of transferable points, especially if there's at least two currencies, you can almost 
always find some way to do what you want to do. But the key is, besides the flexible points, is your own flexibility, right? So you can't, and, and I, I don't do award bookings per se. I do do one-on-one consultations to help people learn this stuff better. But I don't do an award booking service, which is which is very deep in the woods. Um, on, on literally transactional, like you pay and they find you the best award. But the, even there, people will say like, well, I want to go to Milan on June 12th and I want to come back on June 28th and I only want to take an overnight flight there and I only want to take a morning flight coming back and I don't want to connect anywhere either way and I don't want to spend more than X miles, right? And you, you can't do it that way. The approach would be more like, I want to go to Italy on ideally this week. And then I'd like to be there approximately this number of days. Hopefully you're okay with the connection. There are times I understand, like actually right now we have a, a, a nine month old and we just planned a trip to Italy for next summer. And my wife said no connection. So, you know, there might be a reason that you don't want to do it, but generally flexibility is the key. Um, we actually, to get to Italy, used the Emirates Fifth Freedom route that goes from JFK to Milan. And I did slightly overpay in terms of paying more than I could have paid if I, say, took Air France connecting. But we were able to get business class with the bassinet, you know, everything sort of perfectly. And you even get the chauffeur service when you book an advantage award on Emirates. So the car service to the airport both ways um, helps too. So there are times that you might spend a little bit more or sacrifice something that you wanted, right? So the sacrifice, like if I want, I think that trip costs 280,000 miles for for the two of us, uh, including the baby. And I probably could have done the same trip for about 160,000 miles, 140,000 miles, but I would have had a sacrifice with maybe a connection, maybe even a connection where we had a transit from one airport in Paris to the other. Um, So depending on what your bank looks like, determines how flexible you need to be, right? If you And if you really are starting out, you, you're going to need to be the most flexible. And when you are redeeming points, what are the factors that you consider when you come, when it, when it comes to deciding whether you're overpaying, underpaying, whether it's good value, whether it's a, it's a good redemption or not? This, so this is, this is actually a really interesting question. Um, in the miles and points geek community, we love to uh, talk about cents per point or cents per mile. And what that basically means is you take the cash value of the ticket and you divide with the number of miles and you figure out how many cents per point you're getting. And on Miles Talk and you know several other blogs, uh, we have a valuation for certain points, right? So if, if, if we say, you know, on Miles Talk, I'll generally say, for example, a United point is worth 1.2 cents. So if you've got an award where you're getting two cents, you can feel pretty good about redeeming on that. If you're only getting, say, 0.7 cents, then you probably want to pay cash, right? So that's the logical value value proposition is you definitely don't want to cash out for less than the, the point is worth, assuming you're not earning millions of points a month. If you are, it's a bit of a different story. You can just use them all the time. But... So for me, like for as an example, I have averaged out Hyatt points to be worth about 1.7, 1.75 cents. That's what I feel like the average person will get with very little effort. 
but I won't personally redeem them for less than two cents a point. And I generally redeem them for over five cents a point. But I also tend towards the luxury trips where you get the higher cents per point. The fallacy is when people are doing premium cabin trips. So it becomes a, a bit of a game where you want to get the highest cent per point, which I also do. I love, you know, I did, uh, I did a stay at, at a Hyatt in California called Ventana Big Sur, and I got over eight cents per Hyatt point in value. And I'd earned all of those at 3X on my Chase Inc. preferred. So I had an effective return on spend of 24%. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was fantastic. But the reality is that I never would have paid $2,500 a night to stay at the Ventana Big Sur in cash. But the other reality is that it's an experience that I never would have had otherwise. <laughs> right. And I guess to take one step back, there are definitely two different camps of how people use miles and points. The first camp um, is the, they just want to get as many flights and hotels as possible. They're not looking for luxury. They're fine to fly in, fly in economy, um, fine to stay at, say, a choice hotel. And they are easily able to use a cent per point value meter, right? If it's, if it's more than that point is worth, then go ahead and use the points. If not, pay cash and earn more points. Um, it, but it's more complicated when you're on the other side, which is the side I'm on, which is luxury redemption. Right, I want all my points for flying business class or first class international. I, I'm happy to fly coach domestically um, and pay cash for it. And I save my points for the big international redemptions. I don't ever want to have to, you know, sit upright going to Europe or to Asia, um, and I don't have to because that's what I collect the points for. And so for me, it's not because I got eight cents or ten cents per point, but it's because I had an experience that I never would have had otherwise. Right. But I'm using so many more points for these experiences. If my goal was just more travel, I could probably do four to eight times as much travel going in, in coach and staying budget, right? So those are the two different kinds of people. And you, and you really need to know who you are because that's going to determine if you're willing to part with points for certain redemptions or not. And I should also mention, by the way, you know, historically, we always talk about miles redemptions as being you transfer the point to the frequent flyer mile program. And then you make a redemption based on the reward chart, or as you pointed out earlier, lack of award chart these days. Um, but the banks also all have portals, right? So if you have a Chase Sapphire Reserve, you can just spend 10,000 points and get $150 in value because your, uh, your points are worth 1.5 cents. Uh, if you have a preferred, they're worth 1.25 cents. And there are some people that just want to cash out that way because... They're still getting the bonus multipliers from the card. Let's say with the preferred, they're still getting three times on dining. And then if they cash out at 1.25 cents, um, they're still getting north of, of uh, three to half cents in value, which far beats a 2% cash back card. And they don't have to do any work. Of course, there are downsides to the portal, like the fact that if you book an airline ticket through a portal and you need to make a change, you need to call up the portal and not the airline. So there's pluses and minuses, simplicity of booking, but possibly uh, more trouble down the line. You also won't get hotel benefits if you book through a portal. So those are the different ways. And then so the minimum value that somebody wants to redeem for really depends on the person. Here's something I've always been curious about. How do you and I guess other websites come up with the valuation for points? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they are based on on running a lot of different redemptions 
uh, and coming up with an average, right? So you, you try and think about a mix of domestic redemption, like if it's an airline, a mix, mix of domestic redemptions, um, European, Asian, all of these things. Um, and, then, and then also comparing that with availability. Um, there, are, there are some sites that do it on a very data-driven basis. Uh, I know the points guy has spent some time to, trying to really drill down. But even when they do it that way, there are still so many outlying cases that it's tough to say that that's even necessarily better than doing 100 data points and just saying like, okay, on average, this looks like about what you're getting. And they also change all the time. Um, I've, I've adjusted our miles and points valuations countless times when a program devalues, because if there's one really great way to use it, like a, a great example would be Chase Ultimate Rewards. Now, I don't think they're losing Hyatt as a partner anytime soon, but if they did, their value would drop. I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly, but it would drop from 1.75 on my site to you know, probably 1.5 or 1.4 cents if they didn't have Hyatt. Because the flexibility that you get for huge redemptions with Hyatt definitely pulls the weight up. So you have to look at all of the partners and all the different ways that you can redeem them. And, um, you know, it's a bit of a science, but, but it's also a bit of an art. You just kind of feel over time, like, what are, what are you and the people that you work with getting? Like I mentioned at the beginning, the next episode of Flying Smarter will feature the second portion of my conversation with Dave. In that part, he'll discuss tips on finding the right credit cards, address concerns about credit scores and responsible credit card usage, and share some of his own points and miles stories, and much more. In the meantime, you can find his website Milestalk at milestalk.com and his data-driven tool that helps consumers answer the question of which credit card is best for them at yourbestcreditcards.com. You can also find Dave and Miles Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I'll include links to all those in the episode description. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. The next episode of the podcast will have the second part of my chat with Dave, and you won't want to miss that. Be sure to follow or subscribe to Flying Smarter on your podcast platform of choice so that you get that and future new episodes right when they're released. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.